Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How much do corporations need to change to stay in business in a hot and disrupted world? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. If you say our goal is to maximize shareholder value, all you're going to do is have your customers say, oh, so you don't care about us. Your employees say, oh, so you don't care about us, your communities, so you don't care about us, and make your job much harder. That's Roger Martin, a business strategist and author of When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. He'll join us later on today's show. First, how are the economics and geopolitics of energy changing amid the COVID pandemic? This isn't about supply and demand. This is about the economies being open or closed. Daniel Jurgen is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of many best-selling books, including his seminal one on energy, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. His latest is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Jurgen is vice chairman of IHS Market, an energy consultancy, and serves as CNBC's global energy expert. Our conversation begins in the fall of 2019. A trade war between the United States and China is battering the global economy and hurting demand for oil, with prices down to about $60 a barrel. Then, on September 14th, a twin attack at night with drones on two major Saudi oil facilities, one of them the largest in the world. This was an extraordinary operation, the scale, the method and the impact. This was the biggest disruption that had ever happened in world oil. Uh, it was an attack on the Saudi facility for processing oil that is uh, exported. Uh, it came from the north, probably directly or indirectly from Iran. And it was a uh, shock. Uh, but what was also surprising was that uh, the recovery from it was pretty quick, uh, much quicker than would have been expected. And then a few months later, in December, COVID-19 was identified in Wuhan, China. That was also led to a dramatic shock to the global in, in oil industry. Now, the industry is used to boom and bust. How is the COVID crash different from other oil busts? Well, this is a shock that continues to persist, uh, as, and it will persist until there is a vaccine. But it really came in, in a couple of different phases. The first phase was China. And it shut down the uh, the Chinese economy for a number of weeks. And people said, this is the biggest shutdown in world oil that's ever happened because suddenly 8 million barrels a day of demand disappeared out of a world of about 100 million barrels a day. But it was still thought, you know, I think people still had the model in their mind of the SARS epidemic of uh, almost uh, two decades ago and thought it was kind of constrained to China. And then we had the second phase, which was when it really hit North America and hit Europe. And you had what I call in the new map, a, 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 an economic dark age. And then you had a much larger collapse in demand, which reflected the collapse in the global economy in general, losing more than a quarter of world demand. And then we're now in kind of phase three, which is this very uneven economic recovery with the virus, with shutdowns, with it flaring up and down. And that's reflected in oil demand. And almost oil demand has become almost a register of what's happening to the global economy and uh, what COVID-19 is doing to the global economy. Right. And we had a day in there with negative prices and there was the Russia-OPEC price war over production cuts. It seemed to be that the markets were slow to grasp that this how different this time is. 
Yeah. You know, people say, Greg, well, what's the precedent? There is no precedent for what's happened because we've never had a, a mandated government shutdown, really, of economies. And this is part of it, uh, that this is just uh, so much greater than anything that this isn't about supply and demand. This is about uh, uh, the economies being open or closed. And will this perhaps lead to some structural shifts that we've seen um, some oil companies, a BP and others sort of writing down some future assets saying they're not quite sure um, if some of these uh, investments might be written off their books or that there might be some permanent changes happening, structural changes here? Well, Greg, there are two parts to that question. One is kind of write downs where people say assets that were valued, they're now now valuing them. But that's because what type of price estimate do you use? And that constantly shifts. And so assets that get written down, get written up again. But you're raising a larger question, which is how has um, COVID-19 changed how we live? And I think uh, the power of digitalization, people say what was going to take five or six years has happened in a few months. Uh, everybody, you know, people found that they're working at home. Uh, commuting is down and we can measure that in terms, again, of gasoline demand. And so the questions are, on the one hand, is the nature of work changed by what's happened? And does that mean that the morning commute and the evening commute is going to be much less than it was in the past? Or on the other side, are people going to be reluctant to go on public transportation and use cars more? China's now more or less back, and we see oil demand up, people driving more because they don't want to go on public transportation. So I think it's still very open questions, but we're we know in some ways we're just not going to go back to the world that we knew in 2019. You write that the United, a lot of what you write about is about how fracking, hydraulic fracturing developed in the United States with government assistance has changed the power dynamics of global energy. And you write that the United States will continue to have an abundance of natural gas, but the hectic growth days of shale appear to be over. We're seeing fracking companies going bankrupt, wink balance sheets. You know, is the party over for natural the natural gas boom? Well, I think shale, you have to think about in terms of both oil and gas. Because remember, the U.S. a little more than a decade ago was importing 60% of its oil. It was the largest importer of oil in the world. Now, even with COVID, we're the largest producer of oil ahead of Saudi Arabia and Russia. Big change. But I think that kind of, uh, there'd never been a growth like you saw in shale gas, shale oil, and it, you know, uh, carried the U.S. into a different position. I think that, uh, as you say, uh, that industry, like others, has been hard hit. Uh, I think that the U.S. will remain in a, you know, in a preeminent position, uh, but it's not, those days of the rapid growth, which was the most dynamic element in the world market, are over. It was interesting. If you went back a decade, the most dynamic element in the world market was the growth of China, the economic growth and its demand. And you know that from your own experience out in Asia. Uh, and that's what dominated the market and took oil to over $130 a barrel. Now it was shale, which is the dynamic element, which really wasn't anticipated that changed the balance in the marketplace and changed global politics. And then you write that... Um offsetting the slack in oil demand, there's use of plastics is increasing in a lot of areas where during COVID we're trading, you know, hygiene for environmental or sustainability. Um, and some people think that the oil industry will transition to plastics as less oil is burned because of climate change. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure being built in Asia and elsewhere. Um, so how is, you know, are plastics going to save the oil industry and they no. can make products? I, I don't, I mean, I think it will be important. You know, I think that, as you say, COVID has really brought home the role of plastics. If you go into a hospital operating room, so much of what's there is plastics. Uh, you, now you go into a store, a drugstore, and there's a plastic shield between you and the, and the person behind the cash register. So, you know, that hygiene factor and single-use plastics, you don't want to have non-single-use plastics used in hospital rooms. So I think that's that's the growth area, the growth vector. You know, the big debate, uh, as you know, is, well, what's going to happen to oil demand? When does it peak out? And some think it peaks out in the next few years. I think based upon the numbers of cars, economic growth and so forth, assuming we return to some good economic growth globally and rising incomes in places like India, I think probably oil demand peaks out 
later in the kind of early part of the 2030s. But I think it's kind of part of a larger position that this energy transition that has become, particularly after the Paris conference, such a central concept, unfolds over decades. It doesn't unfold overnight. You note alarm about climate disruption driven by fires, torrential rainfalls, heat waves, ice melting. As you and I are talking, uh, wildfires are ravaging California. Uh, recently, there was a 130 degree day in Death Valley, the third hottest day ever recorded on our planet. How concerned are you about climate change? Well, I think climate change obviously is a big issue. And I, in the previous book, The Quest, I had over 100 pages explaining how climate change went from an issue that a few scientists in the 19th century worried about because they were concerned about another ice age to the kind of uh, political force that after the quest came uh, to bear in the Paris Agreement of 2015. And I really divide the energy era. There's before Paris and after Paris. We're in after Paris when you have nations to one degree or another signed on to restraining emissions, bringing down emissions to help manage climate change. I think we also need to think about um, building greater resilience. I just did an event with the mayor of Houston. They had a Hurricane Harvey. Uh, you, ha you have to build resilience in. And then I think the third element is um, we did this big study for uh, called Breakthrough Energy and uh, Bill Gates and a bunch of other funders on what are the technologies you need for the future that, you know, that there's a science side of this that's very important as well. Right. And you right that energy transitions have half, happened many times, wood to coal in the early 1700s and others, you know, to nuclear, et cetera, to oil, now to renewables. The, the question now is the pace. And that's absolutely right. And industry, certainly people who are invested in fossil fuels would like to go at a slower, more comfortable pace. And people who are uh, activists and scientists say we need to go faster. Larry Fink, CEO of Black, BlackRock, largest asset manager in the world, is now pressuring companies. Exxon shareholders voted to require the company to disclose its climate risks earlier this year. 49.6% of shareholders at J.P. Morgan Chase supported a resolution calling for it to align. So talk about the, the pressure on banks and energy companies to go faster. Well, I think the first question is, how do you manage emissions? How do you bring them down? We have 280 million cars in the United States. 279 million of them are powered with gasoline. Cars are, I don't know, six, 7% of global emissions. What do you do about all those cars? Not including light trucks. It's higher if it's light trucks. You know, we have embedded technology. Uh, how do we bring technology to bear? And I think that um, what you pointed to is that a very important part of the picture post-Paris, post-2015, is the role of financial institutions with what's called ESG, uh, environmental, social, and uh, governance. Uh, that has really come to the fore, and uh, investors are asking, telling companies, you know, how do you align yourself uh, with the Paris objectives? And I think this has become pretty pervasive. It's, it's stronger in Europe, where uh, the EU is uh, has a whole thing called the taxonomy, where in terms of allocation of capital, in terms of regulation, trying to accelerate energy transition in Europe. And there's been some controversial projects in the United States, Keystone XL, Atlantic Pipeline. Some might say Shell's $6 billion foray into the Arctic and th then their retreat. Uh, you write about Greta Thunberg and others and Standing Rock. The social license to operate is being questioned in some circles of oil companies. Divestment from universities, your alma mater, Yale and Harvard, others. How much of an impact is that having? We have very you know, abundant resources in the United States. And I think you know, a big battle has become over building pipelines where uh, energy and uh, environmental considerations uh, collide. And they end up usually colliding in the courtroom. And uh, whether those resources uh, flow to markets or not, and there's you know a concerted effort, as you know very well, to prevent new pipelines from being built. But you know how, where do the, uh, will the resources get to markets? And you know as as you know that a major part of the reduction, the, the fact that the United States emissions are down to the level of nineteen early nineteen nineties, at a time when the economy, at least before COVID, had doubled. 
was because of natural gas replacing coal and electric generation. And that was considered a positive. A lot of people don't consider that a positive anymore. But, you know, from a factual basis, that's what's been a major contributor to bringing down our emissions. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with energy guru Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Coming up, putting new energy technologies to work. One of the great advantages the United States has over every other country is our innovative ecosystem that stretches from our 17 national laboratories to universities and think tanks, to startups, to established companies. And I think that's a great strength, actually, in addressing the issues of climate. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Daniel Jurgen. His new book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. With U.S.-China relations at their worst point since the days of Mao, Jurgen talks about the dangerous tensions between the two powers. The single biggest geopolitical issue in the world today is the relationship between the U.S. and China. And Greg, it's getting worse uh, and it's getting more polarized. Uh, Each of the militaries is kind of focusing on fighting the other. And, you know, I I focus a lot on the South China Sea, on Belt and Road, uh, and, you know, and of course the technology race. So I think this is, um, you know, there are 300, about 370,000 Chinese students at American universities spending about $13 billion a year. And I thought in general, this is, you know, good thing. They go back, we're connected. Some stay in the United States and become great entrepreneurs. Now it's become a very fraught area. So I think every element of um, because this relationship- Because some of them are, are spies trying to steal American intellectual property? Well, exactly. And that's it. And so we don't know what percentage of it. Most of them are not, but some are. I mean, I didn't want to go there, but the more you think about history, you see elements that remind you of the Anglo-German tension and antagonism before the First World War. It involved a naval race. That's what we, we actually have a naval race going on. And of course, it involves technology, Huawei. Uh, and, you know, I, I was thinking, you you worked in China for a number of years as a journalist. It was a very different set of relationships and uh, dialogue. It was much more positive. I mean, you must have the same reaction of, of concern to see this this spiraling downward. It's a lot of it comes to questioning intentions and motivations. China's been down for a hundred years at coming back to what they see as their rightful place in the world uh, that historically they've had. And it's, but they feel encircled by the United States. So it gets, if that trust, you question someone's motivations and you look through that dark interpretation and then add in the pipeline with Russia and the alignment between China and Russia now, which, you know, as you know, in the Cold War, that strategic triangle was very complex and shifting. So bring in Russia here, which is a big petro state. You know, uh, John McCain famously said that Russia is a mob run gas station. Um, bring Russia into it. Well, I, I think that uh, one of the really uh, important things uh, to note, if you talk and, you know, what I'm trying to write about in the new map is the relationship of energy and geopolitics and how they come together. And they really do in the Russian-Chinese uh, relationship. And um, Russia has gotten closer and closer to China. I describe, a, well, two scenes in, in, the, in the new map. One, I was at a conference about a year and a half ago, and uh, Xi Jinping, president of China, and Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, are there. And, and Putin apologizes to Xi Jinping. I kept you up late talking. It was four o'clock in your morning. And Xi Jinping says to him, we never have enough time to talk about. And then I go forward a few months and uh, Putin and Xi Jinping are meeting in in Central Asia. And and Putin brings the Russian ice cream that he says that Xi Jinping really loves, his favorite Russian ice cream. And uh, Xi Jinping says, you're my best friend. And uh, so I think this relationship between Russia, there again, as you're suggesting, Greg, there are a lot of factors that come together, but that's a big geopolitical factor, the alignment of those two countries. And they're joined together by oil and gas. Russia's as you, a big supplier, uh, seen as a secure supplier to, to China. 
And they're also brought together by their emphasis on absolute sovereignty and their, uh, their common opposition to the United States. And I guess they're brought together by the fact that Xi Jinping is president of China for life and Vladimir Putin is president of Russia by the new constitutional amendment to 2036, which is kind of like being president for life. And you write how Yeltsin and, and Gorbachev were unlucky when it came to the price of the of oil, uh, which keeps the Russian or Soviet economy afloat. Um, how is Vladimir Putin faring in terms of this now questioning oil? They're very dependent on fossil fuels for their economy because they don't seem to do a whole lot else that the world wants. Well, you know, when he became um, president of Russia, almost nobody had heard of him. I mean, he was sort of a mid-level former KGB guy who then had spent a decade rising up in the, in the post-Soviet system. Uh, but he was very lucky because those two, you meant Yeltsin and Gorbachev, price collapsed both times and it undermined them. And Putin rose the, um, up the ladder of uh, rising oil prices, the, the sort of super cycle, as it was called, in commodity oil going from $20 a barrel to over $130 a barrel. And that solved a lot of problems for him, how to pay pensions, how to pay for his army and everything. So he was a great beneficiary uh, of that. Uh, what then happened is that, um, you know, there've been a couple of price collapses right now, and they have adjusted their economy to the degree that they probably get by with about $50 a barrel oil. It doesn't give them a lot of elbow room, but they, they don't want prices too high. And something else to keep in mind about Putin, he looks at shale, not just as a energy source, not just as a competitor. He looks at it as an adjunct of U.S. foreign policy. He sees shale having given the U.S. a flexibility globally that it didn't have before because it's no longer so highly dependent upon imports. And indeed, he sees the U.S. deliberately trying to compete with Russian gas in Europe with LNG. You know, so that's kind of the picture, I think, uh, that he has. Uh, but he still has a problem of an economy that's over, way overly dependent upon uh, oil and gas uh, and just hasn't been able to reform. And that makes Russia uh, threatened by Paris Climate Accord. If they think that, you know, if the goals of Paris are to the decarbonization of the global economy, that's not in Russia's interest. And we know that Russia is meddling in, in the United States. So what does that mean for Russia trying to slow down and sabotage the Paris process? Well, they've signed on to Paris, you know, and they've, you know, committed. But it's one thing to sign on to something and it's another thing to do something. Uh, so I don't think they're particularly hastening to do anything about uh, climate, you know, to the same degree. I think their focus is more near term. I think it is on the competition with the United States, the competition in the world market and the geopolitical influence that they draw from their position uh, that they're meddling and know how to meddle. That's, you know, that's, you know, they certainly did in 2016 and all signs are they're going to continue to do it in this electoral campaign, and they have proved uh, very uh, adept at it. So, uh, and it's not only our elections, by the way, it's other elections too. So there's this whole new battlefield that didn't exist before, which is the, you know, the internet, the digital, the public opinion battlefield around uh, digital communication uh, that we're, uh, that's part of this new Cold War. You know, it's not with the Soviet Union, it was about nuclear weapons. Now it's about a lot of other things, including energy and including technology and, uh, and internet. If you're just joining us, my guest is energy guru and Pulitzer Prize winning author Daniel Jurgen. His latest book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. You write about Europe's Green Deal, its plan to build back greener out of the COVID recession. And you know, for Europe to achieve its goal of per capita emissions, it would have to decline to the level of India, where per capita income is about $2,000 a year compared to $38,000 a year in Europe. While factually accurate, are you suggesting that decarbonization requires a reduction in material living standards? I think decarbonization requires new technologies to get there. You know, I don't think you're going to do it with the existing technologies. And that goes back, you know, because I have a chapter that draws upon the work I did with Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary on energy technologies. I think we need heavy investment in technologies and technologies take five or 10 years. You know, they don't just sort of appear. And so something I've 
felt strongly is that we need a basic commitment to, to, to R&D that doesn't go up and down with, with budgets because we need that to really address these questions. I mean, is you know, air capture of carbon going to work? Is there going to be liquid fuels from you know, plants, uh, artificial photosynthesis? I mean, there are a lot of things there that people are working on. And I think one of the great advantages the United States has over every other country is our innovative ecosystem that stretches from our 17 national laboratories to universities and think tanks, to startups, to, um, to established companies. And I think that's a great strength, actually, in addressing the issues of climate. There's another theory of change, which is we don't need any new technology. We just need to deploy uh, what we already have. We have electric cars. They're not affordable for everyone, but some support for that could move forward. That we don't we have all the technology we need. We just don't have the political will and deployment to get them in everybody's hands. Yeah, I guess I disagree with you. I think that uh, we need a new generation of batteries. We need cheaper batteries. And by the way, we need a battery system that's not. I mean, uh, the you know China dominates the whole uh, lithium battery supply chain. I mean, there's a whole geopolitical element here. Uh, that's not recognized in terms of they dominate solar manufacturing. Uh, so I think we've let them run away with that, right? We've let well, them. We, well, I think that's, a you know, something I spent some time, actually that very question, why did it happen? Uh, the Chinese have been, we let them, but they also made this investment in this massive manufacturing capacity, which they may, you know, we don't really know what the subsidy situation is. We don't, really know whether they're making money or not, but they have undercut everybody else. You know, when I started writing The Quest, I interviewed the head of the largest German solar company. By the time I was finishing the book, he'd gone bankrupt because of Chinese manufacturing. So I think, you know, are we, do we need a national energy policy? So I think we have batteries, we have electric cars, we have about a million on the road. We have 279 million that are not electric cars. The average car stays on the road now for almost 12 years. So it's just, that's, you know, kind of, it's the reality of these numbers. You can say you can regulate it. You can use pricing like a carbon tax or carbon price, and you can use uh, innovation. And I think our great strength as a country is our innovative capacity. There's a question though, even some of the uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists that I speak to are question whether markets will do it in time because of the incentives and the structure, you know, markets will may get us there, but not fast enough. There needs to be some policy support and intervention. But what is the, I mean, it's questions, what is the it? Are you going to remove all 279 cars off the road? I mean, are we good? Here's another question for you. Germany shut down all of its nuclear power plants or will have shut down by 2022 and 2023. In the same period of that they're being shut down, China has more than increased its share of nuclear. So, you know, the nuclear industry now globally it's kind of being more dominated by the by the Chinese and the Russians, and that that's where you know, the the economics are opaque. We don't know how much state subsidies happening there. If they're standing on their own economically, that's they're not Russia and China are not market economies, right? There's... Exactly, and that's you know that goes to the whole trade dispute. So much is opaque about what's the government role in terms of supporting uh, everything, and including that extends to solar too. We don't know that. And there's solar in some places in, in, uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere that is, you know, approaching, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour. Solar is the most, uh, the cheapest energy on the planet right now. Could, so talk about the... the... Well, it, well, I mean, it, it depends on the financing of it and, and how you finance. But there's no question that I talk in the book about the shale revolution. I also talk about the solar revolution. I mean, this decrease, 85% decrease in solar costs or a little more than a decade. I mean, I think that's as big a surprise as what's happened with shale. And it does mean that, uh, you know, if you're in the Middle East, you have a lot of sun and you need a lot of air conditioning. Solar is a very good option. And so you look at Abu Dhabi, Middle East country, building big solar. They've also building four nuclear power plants uh, and they're using gas. But I think, you know, solar is, um, the advance of solar is uh, quite remarkable. I was looking at California a decade ago, you know, you could almost not measure really the contribution of solar in terms of generation. 
In 2019, it was 14% of generation. Which is why some people say the path forward should be to electrify everything, electrify mobility, uh, get combustion out of homes. That's starting to happen in California and other places. No new natural gas lines, methane lines into new construction. Change out your gas stove for a convection oven. Um, given that solar is so cheap, what do you think about electrifying everything? Well, I everything? think that we also find that solar needs a partner, and that partner happens to be natural gas because of the variability. That's, you know, California has its problems. There are a number of reasons for it, but part of it is, and I was, you know, I know that other parts of the, in the U.S. are looking at the California experience, wanting to learn from it, the specific issue about how do you manage the variability and that gets again back to the technology that uh, the control mechanism, the storage mechanisms that you need if you are going to move towards a much more renewable based economy. You need storage that doesn't last just for an hour or two. You need storage that can last for several days. And uh, that's when we talk about the energy transition, that's it. And we go back to research. We need it's the next generation and the next next generation of batteries that are needed. One thing, country that we haven't talked about uh, is Saudi Arabia. Um, there's been a lot happening there. Floating uh, shares in the state-run oil company, Saudi Aramco, seen as perhaps a hedge against uh, uh, fossil fuels. Um, you know, the MBS, the, the crown prince there, very controversial figure uh, involved in the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post reporter. So talk about Saudi Arabia's transition. Are they serious about hedging their risk on, on fossil fuels or is that just optics? Well, I think on the one hand, I think Saudi Arabia sees itself, you know, if there is the day of peak oil and declining, that they'll be the, the last person standing because they're a very low cost producer and they have a lot of oil, very large reserves. Uh, but I think, you know, there's whenever the oil prices collapse, the oil exporting countries, including Saudi Arabia, talk about, well, we need to diversify our economies, but they never have. Uh, I think this time they really do, you know, they, they see that the world is going to change. Uh, oil is not going to, you know, it's now about 32% of world energy. Um, it's going to, its share will, will decline eventually over time. And so, and they look next door at Abu Dhabi, which is a smaller country, uh, but one which has gone from a country that was almost all of its GDP was oil. Now it's 60% non-oil. And they're saying, among other things, we have to build up a sovereign wealth fund uh, so that we can invest diversified around the world. You know, they went through a period of heavy investments in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, they have uh, this vision 2030. But you know what? It's really hard to diversify a, an economy. And, it, you know, it's a cultural thing. It's an educational thing. Uh, you need to, you know, people need predictability. Small business needs to be able to start up and so forth. So I think, you know, a lot of discussion about diversification. Uh, but I think it, particularly in this context of uh, when oil prices have come down combined with COVID, it's a lot more difficult, but I think they are looking at it more than, let's say, Russia is. But I think a, a lot of countries, Nigeria, other countries are, you know, kind of facing the same question. You've got to diversify your economy. Well, Dan Jurgen, thanks for coming on Climate One. Thank you, Greg. This was a great discussion. I appreciate it. That's Daniel Jurgen, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. While he says the energy transition will happen slowly, sometimes change happens faster than people expect. If you would have gone back to when the Exxon was the most valuable and done the who'd have thunk it, I mean, you would have gotten people saying, you're an idiot. Being funded out of the Dow Jones 30 is insane. You're insane. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. 
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Daniel Jurgen and many other experts say that energy efficiency is key to addressing climate change. More efficient cars, appliances, and factories will allow us to maintain our economy and stabilize the climate that supports it. Business strategist Roger Martin agrees, mostly. Martin is the author of the new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. I'm a fan of efficiency, but I'm not a fan of efficiency when it doesn't take into account resilience. Uh, and some things, what you're just referring to, felt like efficiency that drives resilience. That's good kind of efficiency. Efficiency that ignores resilience is uh, as a bad kind of efficiency. So for, for example, if we just want to use something topical, it was extremely efficient to carry minimum stocks of PPE in the hospitals of America, right? Uh, because what you, why do you want your, your uh, warehouses and, and, uh, and storerooms full of PPP that you weren't going to use on, an, on a regular uh, basis? That makes for more efficient use of working capital, more efficient use of storage space. But it's ain't resilient at all at all and so so that's where you have to have a, just a sense of balance between efficiency and resilience it isn't it isn't an unalloyed good forever uh without appreciation of other features right and american capitalism as you're right has, has this obsession with efficiency we live also in a culture and economic system in which more is always better. Publicly traded companies are expected to post revenue growth quarter over quarter over quarter. When people stop buying stuff, the economy sags, people lose their jobs, donations to nonprofits go down. Where does this lead? Are we trapped? A lot of our systems are trapping us, yes. Uh, and so uh, I think the widely held publicly traded corporation uh, is now to too great an extent trapped in a world uh, in, in which it has to start doing things that aren't good for it. Um, that means growing faster than it makes sense uh, uh, to grow. Um, and everything has a life cycle. Uh, and there are many corporations out there that have had explosive growth, gotten, gotten big, and would be better off for their employees, better off for their shareholders, actually, to just stabilize and not grow uh, because other things are growing and not, and not them. But that then makes them a complete capital markets failure, a complete bust, and, and uh, people will come in and shop out costs and whatever to try and make their revenue uh, grow. Um, but it's one of these things that's unsustainable. I mean, the whole environmental movement that, that you're so involved in is one form of sustainability. But I think of sustainability writ large, right, which is you should make your corporation sustainable in the sense that you, if you have a corporation that makes money by being horrible to its employees, right, or being shady with its customers, that's as unsustainable as having having uh you know factories that spew out pollution and destroy the earth Th those are different forms of the absence of sustainability right and recently we've seen billionaires question the american form of capitalism ray dalio has said that the american dream is lost and that quote capitalism needs to re be reformed salesforce founder mark benioff has called for a new capitalism that includes higher taxes you write about the perils of democratic capitalism as, as it's practiced in the United States. Is it, how healthy is it? Well, I think it's getting less healthy, right? So, so I think the, this obsession with efficiency, unalloyed, just more is, is better. And the treatment of the American economy as a perfectible machine, uh, which we can just keep pushing harder and, and, uh, and making more perfect. That's what's undermined uh, what I think is the beauty of American democratic capitalism. I mean, I know, I know it's not maybe the most popular thing to to say now, but I think it's a beautiful system and has done wonderful things for uh, America and and the world. But it shifted, you know, after two hundred years of of working kind of one way and kind of working better, I think, and better, it's shifted. And so the problem is there isn't a great 
list of other kind of examples of of systems to use uh, that have worked great uh, elsewhere. But that might be a false binary, this idea that it's capitalism or socialism. There's many different uh, flavors of capitalism in, in Europe, for example, where there are markets, but the, the government has a firmer role. I mean, I think in this country, um, we have this like, oh, socialism, anything with it where the government has kind of some strong input on on, on on setting the rules. Would you agree with that, that we have this false binary of capitalism or socialism? There's a lot sort of in that middle. I guess so. Um, like I, I, I probably see it a little bit different, which is I, I love uh, Scandinavia. I, I love a whole bunch of things about, about the way these countries work. Now, granted, these are small countries and small countries are easier to manage and run than a big gigantic one. So uh, they're sort of these nice bite-sized uh, economies. I work a lot in Denmark, as it turns out, and I, and I, and I love it. I do not think of any Scandinavian country as what I would think of as socialist. I just don't. I think those are cleverly capitalist uh, countries. For example, people think of Sweden as a high tax regime. Most people do not realize that its corporate taxation regime is much more favorable than the U.S.'s. Hmm. Who knew? So, yeah. yeah. And so Sweden is super clever. What Sweden says is, you know, we're going to make this one hell of a country to live in. And for that privilege, you are going to pay very high taxes personally if you are a high income person. Uh, but that's okay because it's a hell of a country to live in. And we're going to make it that with all sorts of things that, that yes, people maybe on the American right would call socialist. I don't, I, I, I don't consider good healthcare socialist and, and, and the like. Uh, but they say to corporations, you know what your job is, is to uh, create great jobs where people will make a lot of money and then we will tax them uh, to fund this wonderful system uh, we have. We are not interested in taxing you at a high rate, so you're less likely to create great jobs in this country. Maybe take your money outside and create those jobs elsewhere. We want you to create great jobs here, and so we're going to tax you at a, at a very low rate, like very low rate. Now that you call that socialist, or I'm not saying it. If somebody calls that socialist, I say I call that clever capitalism. Uh, figure out how to run a great country and tax the right people for the right things. Sure, sure. And, and um, you write that markets are complex systems. They are smart. They adapt. And yet uh, Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, has said investors face huge financial losses because markets are underpricing climate risk. That would, Markets which we worship in this country are not fully reading or incorporating the information about climate risk. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. Now, I'm relatively encouraged on that front, though, uh, because I've been kind of watching this f uh, for a while and I was on the school foundation board for a while and we, we that was one of the issues that we worked on. And there's just so much better information out there now. Like I'm, I'm a practical guy and my view on tools is that when a human being doesn't have a tool to do a thing that he or she might otherwise want to do, they just don't do it. So we only do things we have tools for. And there was no responsible investing funds, right, for example, until there was a tool for judging whether a company is responsible or not. Sustainalytics and these, these, these ranking systems came out so that people could say, oh, there, you're, you're, you're ranked above the bar we've, we've set, so we'll invest in you, and you're ranked below the bar we won't invest in you. Until we had the tool, we had no, we had no funds, right? Once you have tools, People will use them. I think boards now do, pension funds uh, now do, and we're going to see, I think, a sea change in how uh, the markets uh, treat climate uh, risk and are, are already, in, in, in my view. If you're just joining us, my guest is Roger Martin, business strategist and author of When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Uh, Ten years ago, you wrote about the perils of capitalism that put shareholders ahead of everyone and everything else. Now the notion of stakeholder capitalism is becoming more mainstream. That's a form of capitalism that serves broader interests and in recognition of income inequality, systemic racism, and the climate crisis. 
But how will that ever be realized when corporate executives who are paid in stock hold so much power over the politicians who write the rules? Now, it's a, a tricky problem, a tricky and a big problem. And yeah, I've been writing about this for a long time. So this is like Aristotle. Aristotle is my favorite, my favorite writer, probably. You know, and he and he said way back, way back when, if a man, because he only wrote about men in those days, if a man seeks to be happy, he's unlikely to end up happy. If a man seeks to lead a good life, by which he meant a life of servitude to his his fellow man, uh, he's like, likely to end up happy. Well, this is the same with with corporations. If you say our goal is to maximize shareholder value. All you're going to do is have your customers say, oh, so you don't care about us. Your employees say, oh, so you don't care about us, your communities that you environ. Oh, so you don't care about us and make your job much harder. Right. If instead you genuinely say, uh, you know, I'm about making the world a better place. You know, I also need to make money for for the, the people who give me the resources to, to invest. But I'm into making the world a better place. I think it makes your customers happy. It makes your employees happy. It makes the communities happy. It makes your job easier. I would say between 10 years ago and now, there's a little greater recognition uh, of, uh, of that. But I do think that the greatest change on this front is not going to come directly from the corporations, but indirectly. So when customers say, we want something different, corporations will move. When investors say, we don't like what you're doing, corporation, we're not going to give you money, it, it starts to change. And when employees say, I'm going to choose who I work for on the basis of how good I feel about what they're doing for the, for the world. I think it's all those things that are going to have the biggest impact on corporations. So there's only so much I, I want to do of saying to corporate CEOs, you must be different. I mean, I'll, I'll happily say that, and I write lots about, about that, but I'm much more interested in customers saying, sorry, I ain't buying your stuff uh, unless you do uh, this sort of things, or even better, I'm going to buy somebody else's stuff. I'm going to reward these people for what they're doing. We need much more of that uh, to have the kind of widespread change that, that I think you and I and others all would like to see. Well, we talked earlier in this episode with Daniel Jurgen, who sees a decades-long transition from fossil fuels to cleaner types of, of fuels. Uh, the challenge is that climate scientists say we don't have a lot of time and consumers don't have a lot of choice because basically for 100 years, gasoline has been a monopoly. Yeah, you can buy an electric car if, if you can afford one. So how do you see the energy transition happening? Will markets alone do it or do markets need... Um, encouragement from government? Oh, I'm totally into uh, uh, sensible encouragement uh, from government. And, and I, you know, I think even though the car companies, uh, you know, said life as we know it will end when CAFE, you know, the corporate average fuel economy regulation uh, came in uh, 40 years ago, um, I liked it as a form of uh, regulation because they said to the car companies, not you must use aluminum, you must make your engine smaller, you must do these things, which are inputs to the output that you want. They said, nah, you guys are better at this. Uh, corporate average fuel economy now is 13 and a half miles per gallon. And in 10 years, it's going to be 27.5, or we're going to find the hell out of you. Go. So I kind of like the idea of using CAFE, which has been used, uh, right, to, to keep amping up the the uh, uh, fuel efficiency required in a way that makes it uh, more attractive, uh, which it already does, uh, but maybe even even more uh, attractive to have a bigger portion of electric vehicles in the fleet that you sell every year. So I I I, I agree. Um, that having been said, right? You know, I think Tesla has done a wonderful thing for the world because who is sort of backing Tesla consumers who line up to get on wait lists for the new vehicles. So you have this consumer pull that says, if you build one of those things that it's going to be better for the environment, I'll buy it. It's better than saying the government saying, you've got to do something that produces something that people don't like, right? Because that's what some regulation, unfortunately, does. And it's just less powerful regulation than regulation that's in tune with what consumers want. 
So you've got consumers desperately desiring a Tesla and the government rewarding, rewarding Tesla for producing that thing. That's the best of all worlds. And Tesla is now valued by the stock market much more than any other automaker. And on the other side, ExxonMobil was recently kicked out of the, uh, the Dow Jones index after 100 years. Just 10 years ago, ExxonMobil was the most valuable company in the world. Now it's been surpassed by tech. So how do you see that divergence or those, those, the valuation of what the market's saying about fossil fuel companies and their future? I mean, that, that's why I said earlier in, in our conversations, I'm more encouraged than not, right? Which is that these things are happening. Like, you know, if you would have gone back to when an Exxon was the, the most valuable and done the who to thunk it, I mean, you would have gotten people saying you're an idiot. You, what you've just described, them being punted out of the Dow Jones 30 is insane. You're insane, right? Well, why is Tesla valued so highly? I think the... Only reason that Tesla has the valuation that it has is customers love them, right? It's a great example of what moves the needle the best. And I think what moves the needle the best is when these other players, consumers, employees, uh, investors are essentially working in tandem with the policy desire and if the effect is then everybody else says, well, this is smart investment, not insane investment, then you get this follow on effect. Roger Martin, thanks for coming on Climate One. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Roger Martin, business strategist and author of When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.